Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast with Michael Russo and Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Joining us today with He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast is Kevin Maney, a journalist who's been covering tech and society for 30 years and the author of Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Kevin is a partner at Category Design Advisors, where Kevin and his team guides leadership teams to help them define develop, and ultimately dominate a new category of business. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jackie. Appreciate it. You see how he thanked me, Michael, and not you? That's because he likes me. You <laughs> not so much. Of course. He thinks he thinks I'm an idiot because we just did 15 minutes and I didn't record any of it. So, yeah. Kevin, I, again, I'm, yeah. I apologize. We had all this great stuff in there, but uh, we'll, we'll jump in again. And I, I appreciate your patience. We'll try, we'll, do, we'll try to do it again. Fingers crossed. That it's even better this time. So, Kevin, as I rehearsal. asked you, it was rehearsal. Exactly. It was just a <laughs> test run. It didn't really count. As I asked you originally, um, walk us through, if you don't mind, that transition from journalist to design advisor and how exactly you did that. And then talk to us about creating categories because it was fascinating the first time. I can't wait to hear it again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, um, I, so I, I'll get to bore you with my, my life story again. Um, no, I love it. I was, yeah, I was. Um, uh, so I, I I was a journalist and um, I was covering the technology industry going back to, to you know, starting in the late 1980s uh, and, uh, and and covering the industry, interviewed pretty much every big name that you could talk to, maybe you could think of. Um, and um, and I started writing books along the way and, and worked for USA Today for a very long time, you know, wrote for Fortune Wire and everybody else. And um, and one of the books that I wrote, which came out in 2016, was this book called Play Bigger. And I co-authored that was the, with these um, three other Silicon Valley veterans who had become startup coaches. And they already, going into the book, they already had some ideas um, that they were using when they talked to companies around the idea of category creation and their their kind of go-to thing was um, that in most markets today, most digital markets especially, but actually this is true throughout history, in any given market category, one company usually walks away with most of the economics of that category. And, and then there's maybe a number two player and then a few stragglers at the at the back end. And um and, and you you know you think about uh, you know ride sharing and you've got uber with a huge market share and a huge presence in the lift as a number two and then you know in the us anyway you could barely think of anybody else that's in that space um you know and you can go back to other things like um you know the uh, chrysler came out with a minivan in the 1980s and essentially defined and developed that category and it's whatever 50 years later and the company still owns 50% of the share of the many of them market around the world because that's the power of creating a category. So their point of view going into the working on the book was if you're running a company, if that's true, why wouldn't you reverse engineer that and say, why wouldn't you want to find a way to create and dominate or, you know, or at least come into and define and dominate a category um, and be that category winner because that's the one who takes away all the best wins, you know, gets the most revenue, the most share, lures the best people. These people want to work for the great, uh, for the companies that are really changing things and driving a new category. Um, And so in doing the book, we essentially 
tried to put together a, a methodology for how to think about that um, and put it into practice, how to see a new market space, how to um, define it, set the rules for it, and ultimately um, take it to the world and and win that category. At least, you know, there's no guarantees, but at least increase the odds that you can win that category. And um, so we took what, you know, what they had already been working with, combined it with a lot of, you know, we, we did a lot of research, people who had studied this stuff before from Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm, recent trout and positioning, um, you know, going uh, back to, you know, economists who study category creation in the past and, and created this, you know, this, this methodology, put it in the book, book comes out most successful book I've ever been a part of all over the world. And, um, and then, you know, I'm a writer, I didn't expect this, I expected just to continue to be a writer. And all of a sudden, CEOs of companies are reading the book and calling and saying, please help us do what you wrote about. So that turned into creating a company or firm called Category Design Advisors. And, um, and now we work with companies all over the world, helping them, helping them do this category design thing. That was a very good recap. Thank you. You're <laughs> <Sorry>. welcome. <laughs> what um, I think, you know, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, when they come in, there's obviously you are either the category definer or the category challenger, right? And so, you know, which one do you like working with the most? Which one is, is the most exciting in, in that in that space? Right. Well, I mentioned we we kind of, Built this on the backs of others who have, you know, studied this stuff. And there was this um, economist named Paul Gorosky, G-E-R-O-S-K-I, who wrote a book called um, The Evolution of New Markets. And um, I, every entrepreneur should read this book. It's kind of somewhat lost to history, crazily enough. But, um, but so Gorosky studied all these market categories, used data, came up with a sort of elegant model of how they emerge over time. And what tends to happen is, you know, on day one, some company or some person invents something that, you know, is different and new to the world. And if that new thing, if that new market category is something that the world looks at and says, you know, this is this is really important. This is something we, we need, but it's not quite done yet. Other companies are going to pile into that category and they're going to come in with all sorts of different versions, different solutions, different ways it works. And over time. And sometimes this is, you know, five, six, seven years into it, maybe even more. Ultimately, what happens is, and by the way, all this time that all these companies are trying all these different things, most buyers are sitting on the sideline. This is the classic early adopter time, right? You know, the, the handful of people who want to try new things are trying, but everybody else is kind of sitting on the sidelines going, well, let's wait to see how this unfolds. And at some moment in time, what Garoski identified is, or called the dominant design gets chosen. And, and the dominant design ends up being that one version of that, that thing that everybody says, oh, that's what it should be like. And suddenly, um, everything else that uh, was all these other versions of it pretty much disappears. The public, the buyers, whether B2B or consumers, believe that this now is the version of it that's going to be around for a while. They feel comfortable with it. And that's when they they start to enter the market and the category takes off. Now, a, a good sort of example, if you want to visualize this, is what happened in the smartphone industry. So if you go back in the early, you know, early, early days, I mean, these things started coming out that were the idea were connecting these mobile phones to the Internet, doing email, Trio, BlackBerry, um, you know, 
Nokia, all these different operating systems. Everybody knew this was going to be a thing, but it was scattered and people were buying, you know, nobody knew which was going to be like the, the safe thing to buy. Um, and, and then in 2007, Apple, which hadn't even been a part of that ecosystem at all, enters the market with the iPhone and everybody says, oh, that's what these things should look like. That's a smartphone. That becomes the dominant design. And if you think what happened since then, before too long, every one of those other things disappeared or copied what Apple had done. Um, and and all these years later, now there's basically you know two left standing. There's there's Apple and its iPhone, and then there's all the Android players. Apple gets you know even though Android might have more actual users around the world, there's been research that's shown that. Apple takes away some astounding, like 90% of the profits of the smartphone industry. And, and that's the power of winning that dominant design. And that happens in category after category after category. So again, what, you know, that whole first mover advantage thing that we used to talk about back in the dot-com area is total bullshit. Uh, you can be the first mover. And, and if you are the one who is that and over time ends up, um, winning that dominant design, great. You're the one who wins the category. But if you're the first mover and somebody else comes in and blows you away with the sun, with you know, with another dominant design, you've lost out. I have a point of of emphasis or or, or interest. Yeah. So we talk about the market before the iPhone, and mm -hmm. as I mentioned previously, I was a huge fan of the BlackBerry. I still mourn its losses. But when we make the other shift to the other side of Apple, where they've never dominated the computer market, how do you how do you compare those two sides to them? Where they, I mean, at at their height, at one point it was three percent. Now I think it's maybe twelve percent of the computer market, but ninety percent of the phone market. The thing they came into late. How does that work? <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, so a big, you know, a big. A big company like Apple or any big company, right, is playing in multiple categories. I mean, Apple is not just one category by itself. And you know, and clearly, when it comes to um, when it comes to um, the computers we use for work, you know, a long, long time ago, Microsoft won the dominant design and won the category. And and um, so you know, in Apple, and, and and again, proof to I mean, all these years later, you know. Most a lot of the people that are listening to this right now will probably say, you know, but the Mac is so much better. I mean, I've, I'm I'm talking to you on a MacBook. I would never want to, you know, work in Windows, but um, but nonetheless, all these years later, you know, it's uh, that's again is the power of winning that dominant design and winning the category. Um, you, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to get shaken loose. Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were talking because uh, I think even if you go through the story of. Steve Jobs and Apple and its development and its crash and its rise and all those different things through it um, always had superior design. I think better functionality. I mean, it was head of the head of its time um, in everything that it did really. But like Jackie said, it never caught on or had the the you know. And there's a bunch of reasons, I guess, for that. Um, I think with the iPhone, I, I would think at the time they were they were the leaders, right? I mean, they they came out with the first interface and the, with the iPod and then leading into the iPhone, all these different things, they were, they were the leaders of that, of that space. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then it was just to hang on to it um, over time. And I think they, we talk a lot about um, like consumer owns the brand, right? Like they're eventually they're going to decide, right. They're going to decide what they like most and you can try to influence it and tell them what you want them to believe, but they're the ones that are, we're at their mercy. I mean, would you agree with that? Like they're the, they're the final decision makers in that. 
Well, yeah, of course. And, but, you know, there's also, we get into, in, in the book too, we get into, um, we, we talk to a lot of uh, we, uh, neuroscientists about um, how our brains work and make decisions and, and uh, cognitive biases are powerful things. We, you know, we make decisions. We'd like to think, we all like to think we make decisions based on facts, but we don't make decisions based on facts. We make decisions based on these biases that get implanted in our brains. And, and, um, and when something as powerful as the, you know, the iPhone wins a brand, wins a category or Google wins a category, you know, professional social networks and LinkedIn, you know, it gets locked into these biases that can't get moved. Um, and that's why, you know, Microsoft can come along and invent Bing and spend $5 billion on, you know, commercials trying to tell us and show us and prove to us that it's better than Google. And maybe it was. And we didn't care because the cognitive bias is so entrenched Google in our brains that this was what we we're going to use. So, yeah, I mean, um, the, the, the public does decide. Um, but if you can, you can, the company can play a role in that. Um, by feeding these cognitive biases and trying to make sure that they are the ones who get seen as the category winner. And by the way, as you know, we all know, I mean, the best product is not what wins. That's that plays no role in this whatsoever. Um, it's what we all, you know, sort of collectively decide wins. Yeah, I think it goes all the way back to the Betamax. My, uh, a little bit before my time, my dad still swears at it because we have one, they have one sitting at their house. The collection of Betamax tapes. <laughs> it was no, the... he's not kidding. They still use their Betamax. <laughs> good for good, good for them. That's uh, you know, we got some people drive antique cars. I mean, you know. <laughs> well, we call it. Like I said, you talked about you know the um, decision making, but uh, we like we refer to it as emotional connections, right? Um, from mm -hmm. our branding side, and we try to um, always have our clients, you know find that emotional connection, whatever that is. And, um, and cause that's where it seeps in. That's where it gets a little deeper and, you know, and emotional doesn't always mean, you know, happy or sad. It's just, you feel something, right. That's a gut right. reaction maybe, or whatever. And like, I like this. Why do I like this? I, most people can't probably even explain that, you know, at times, uh, but there is some motivation and some influence around it. Well, and to play off that. And also I know, you know, you guys, you know, talk a lot of work with your you know, with clients of people about narratives and all of that. And, um, you know, and yes, we believe that too. And, and, and again, sort of with a little help from some of the, you know, the neuroscience community that we talked to mm -hmm. realized one, one, one interesting thing, which is that if you could very accurately describe the problem someone has, they think you have the solution. Um, and so when when we work with companies and and we work with a, a story and one of the things that we produce with a company we want to get to a you know this like 800 word story narrative that that tells the story of why this category should exist and what it looks like and why this company is the one to do it um the whole first half of that story is about the problem we want to get to the root of what the problem is that needs to be solved and describe it in a way that makes you feel like oh my god these people really understand and and then if you define the problem really well, defining the solution is easy because it's basically the reverse of the problem. And and you get people nodding their heads and going, all right, I obviously I need what you got. I do like that. And we, you know, there's um 
who is it, Jackie, the uh, the story brand guy? Donald Miller. Donald Miller. I don't know if you uh, read his stuff or not, but um, we have clients that have come to us and they were like, hey, I read the Don Miller thing. And, and he has this this method of story brand, he calls it. But he basically outlines the step-by-step process where you fill out these answers and uh, it's kind of a do-it-yourself you know, marketing kit um, for businesses. And, um, and it does make sense. I think it's a little too programmed at times it, it can, ends up being kind of artificial like you're forcing square pegs and round holes mm-hmm. but he does start with that as like you know making your client the heroes describing their problem finding out where the villain is is what he calls it in the in the story which i think is is interesting and um you know everybody's got that that hurdle or that problem or that that's something you know and um you know solving the problem is is you know you don't normally equate that to marketing or advertising or branding but i think that's that's part of it is is establishing that trust with somebody you know it is, yeah, yeah. And in fact, interesting, like you said about the the villain. We actually, when we write that story, we try to what we call, we try to name the villain, like so the give the problem like a two word name, so that it becomes a shorthand, you know, and and uh, and and then, um, and then it's easy to refer back to it, and, you know, kind of capture the whole problem in that little in that little phrase, like that. And um, I was looking at your bio sheet as well. They said um, you had one of the topics was CEO storytelling, make it a narrative. What, um, how does that fall into what you do? Or, or is that a, just especially niche kind of thing that you? No, no, it's part of this. Done? I mean, it's it's kind of what I just described. Um, uh, so if we go work with a company, um, we um, we have so we we literally have a, a day long workshop that focuses mostly on what the problem is. What's what's the problem to solve? And that no, and um, we have a um, we 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 apply this formula that we've come up with, um, and so a, a category, a new market category, is context plus missing plus innovation. So to explain that, the the context is what's changing, um, what's what's new in the world. You know, the pandemic makes everybody start working from home or. Uh, or new technologies get invented that create a whole new ecosystem that can be used to solve a problem in a way that never was solved before. Just generally speaking, what's the context around the people you want to address that's changing? And if you can um, identify that, and then then you can talk about, okay, the people that you want to address, the market you want to serve, in this new context, is there either does that either create a new problem for them that they didn't have before? Um, or... Is there an old problem that's not being solved because there hasn't been a way to solve it, but this new context creates a new way to solve it? Maybe it's a bunch of technologies that got invented around something you could take and pull together to solve a problem in a way that wasn't possible before. So if you identify that context and what that missing thing is, uh, what that problem is to be solved, then you can identify the innovation to create to solve that problem. And uh, and so we, we tease all of that out. Um, and, and then the next step is literally to write that narrative, to write the story that says, um, that, that paints that picture of what's the context, what's the, what's the problem to be solved, what's the innovation that's going to solve it and tell that story in a very compelling way. Um, so anybody could understand it and, and believe that this is something that needs to exist in the world. So that's, you know, that's kind of the heart and soul of our, our approach to this. And once you get that story down. And you have you have language, you have words, you have labels you put on things. That's all part of the story. Then the story can inform 
what the brand's going to look like. The story can inform what the marketing messages are going to look like. We even say like, you should take that story and use it in your job descriptions when you go to hire. Um, and, and you should give it to your product team because now the story is informing them on what kind of product they should build. So it's a very powerful way to, um, to plan a flag for a company and say, this is what we're all about and this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. If there was, um, when someone comes to you, let's say you have somebody who's considering, hey, I have a, um, I want to go into this new category. Is there a checklist that you kind of go through and say, to where you kind of ward them off and say, yeah, look, this is not right for you. You know, you're, you're going to lose. You're, like, you know, right away, this is not going to happen. Well, yeah, yeah. So first of all, I mean, if a company comes to us, there's a couple of criteria. Um, and if a company comes to us and it's clearly a category that's already done, it's baked. There's a, you know, a, a, you know, if somebody comes into us and says, we're going to, you know, we're going to take on Google with another search <laughs> engine. And, and it's like, well, you know, uh, that search is baked. And, um, and so you either, either you're going to come in and say, you know, uh, you know, our dial goes to 11 and theirs goes to 10, it, it, you know, but that's, or we're cheaper or we're somehow a little faster. That's not a, that's not a market. I mean, you're going to end up basically scrapping away to try to get a few bits of market share in that category. Um, and you're always at the risk of somebody else coming in and say, we're a little cheaper or we're a little faster. Or, you know, it's, it's not a good position. So that's, that's a no go. Um, but, um, uh, but if a company comes to us and says, and, and we're looking at the cat- category they want to enter and it's kind of, still scattered there's a bunch of players nobody's really owned it yet nobody's really landed on the dominant design that's going to make people go oh yeah that's the that's the right thing um then we can work with them and say you know yeah but it's got to look and feel different from everything you we just talked about the iphone example apple comes out with the iphone it looks and feels completely different from the blackberry from the nokia from the motorola's everything else and and if you're not going to do that you have no chance of dislodging those other players from the category. But if you can do that and set the rules and become the dominant design, you can win that category even as a late entry. But then the other, then the other conversation is instead, um, we, we work with a lot of companies that are maybe three years old, four years old, and um, and they did what they they were launched to do, and have had some success at it but they've kind of stuck at some spot and they feel like they're getting thrown in with a bunch of other companies and, you know, a similar, you know, category that they want to be in, but they have built some technology and have some market presence where they can say, but we see this sort of adjacent space we could create. That's not a problem. That's not being solved yet that we could now do. We'll help them make that shift from being seen as, uh, in a crowded category to moving adjacently to something they can call their own and try to, you know, define and win um, over time and and get out of that crowd. So those are some of the different ways that, you know, we'll approach things as, you know, depending on, you know, what, uh, what's, what's going on at that particular company. What about money? Like um, Jackie's family, that she's used it before where you, um, you money whip something where you just throw money at it instead of actually putting the time in, you know, like it can somebody buy their way into a category if by outspending someone else, you know, I'm sure that's happened where somebody is like said, I am going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, try to buy my way in through marketing uh, through, you know, uh, the space itself. Does that work? Or is that 
destined to fail because the, 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 the true winner is going to eventually, you know, find its way. You know, there may be rare cases where it's worked, but for the most part, you're going to spend a lot of money and take some market share, but you're not going to dislodge that, you know, that, that category winner, you know, um, we're, we just, I just, I wrote a blog post that was we put up just not very long ago about, uh, about the hard seltzer category, which if you think about, you know, like five, six years ago, there was no such thing basically. Right. And now you walk into any supermarket and there's literally, you know, a, a category, a shelf space for hard seltzer and white claw was the, was the brand that, that essentially created the category. And, um, and the, you know, so some little company that was based out of Vancouver, I, I believe if I remember this right. And, um, and after it took off, you know, all these big guys, Anheuser-Busch and, you know, these other big food giants started to enter the market. Of course, they probably spent tons more money than White Claw ever spent. But I'll, at this point in time, White Claw still has 50% of the market. So, um, it, you know, it, when it gets lodged in those cognitive biases when when somebody clearly seems to have won a category it's pretty hard to get them out by sp certainly spending money is not the way to do it i have a quick question how do you balance the research-based data that you need to go get to formulate the decisions and sometimes you're just gut instinct because people are not really rational, logical beings. <laughs> They're completely irrational and emotional in the decisions that they make. So how do you balance those for your clients and for the work that you're doing? Um, the easy answer is your customers have no idea. Um, you know, there's a, what the, I don't know if, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but there's the old Henry Ford quote of, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Um, and, and if a company is working with us and we start talking about, you know, category and they say, well, let's press pause and do a bunch of market research and ask our customers, hey, we'll end up saying you're not, you know, the kind of company we want to work with. Um, it, you know, it, it's, uh, um, the public has to be led and it has to be led by people who have interesting new ideas about how to solve a problem that hasn't been solved yet. And, and customers aren't going to know what that is. They'll tell you they want something that works faster or something that works a little bit bigger or something that's, you know, they'll tell you those things or has a different knob on it or, or you know, a different, you know, data field. But they're not going to tell you about something that they can't imagine. Kevin, you just hit the nail on the head. Michael not only wrote it down, but he circled it. He was so excited <laughs> by that. The public has to be led. That's what he wrote down, isn't it, Michael? Exactly what I wrote down. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. 24 years of partnership. I know what he's thinking. <laughs> no, and we, you know, we got off a call, you know, a couple of days ago where it was, you know, those situations and we're, we're in a much, you know, we're not jumping into, uh, we're a, a small mid-sized agency and um, we have, you know, regional and some national clients, but generally we aren't going up against the white claws of the world or the Ubers or the apples, you know, that's kind of our- B2B. So we don't have that name recognition with our clients. Yeah. Yeah. But they, a lot of them face the same challenges in their own space, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's local, regional or, or national, you know, they're fighting somebody, somebody that owns that space, even in a small town, you know, there's this, this guy who sells this and and he owns that because everybody goes to him for automatically. Like there's a great example. They have, um, we do work for a, a milk company a while back. There's a company here called Borden's and they kind of just own it. Like everybody grew up with sure. Borden's. Everybody yeah, yeah, the brand. 
And um, and we had a, a local dairy that we were working with called Kleinpeter. And they were trying to break into, you know, their space. And it was, and they're still, I mean, it's still a battle, you know, um, they're, they're a little more expensive. They're a little different than the women. And Jack, you tell the story about the, um, the uh, what is it? So in the research that we did um, was determining that the reasons why people buy milk, which this is a really roundabout story to get there, Michael, um, yeah. is they buy it because it's heritage. It's what their mom bought. It's what their grandma bought. That's what they've always bought. That's what they've always drunk. It's just the legacy. Uh, they did it because of health. It's organic. It's nicer. It's more expensive. It's better. I'm using air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's the store brand. It's the cheapest thing. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a commodity like milk, those are kind of the three defining rationales. And our client's not going to win on any of those three. Uh, Borden's is the legacy. So they're not breaking into that. Uh, the store brand is half the price of our client. They're not going to get that category. And they are the same or more expensive than the um, organic. And they're not organic. Mm-hmm. So we kind of are faced with a choice of figuring out a solution to the problem or telling them they're screwed. Uh, but we're a young business and we don't tend tell clients no. So we need to find a way to keep the business. And I think what we came up with, which ended up working with them, they were able to capture 18% of the market in about six months, worked really well, but it was creating a category. It was not not nearly the level of which you do it um, because this was just one small baby market with just a couple of milks. But it worked for them. And so mm-hmm. um, we created this this whole campaign around Klein Peter Kids. And it was about um, really not the milk at all, but the kids and celebrating kids. And so they had to excel middle schoolers in arts, athletics, academics, activism. Um, and so each school would nominate the kids who excel in those areas. And we would tell their story to the community through the Klein Peter channels. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And people yeah. bought Klein Peter milk. Yeah. Well, and it's just, it's just it, like I said, every, you know, I, I find this conversation fascinating because I think about it all the time and we're, we're heavily into the mindset of, of, of branding and, you know, why do people do things and how do we motivate their behavior? Um, and, and sometimes you run up against something like, like you said, I, I love that though. Um, you know, they have to be led. It's like sometimes people sit in the back and wait for they're, they're wanting to follow. And well, they have a, they have a, um, you know, a, a cat on their thing. So we have a cat, you know, should, I mean, like they're following and they're, they're not ready to jump in and say, you know what, I'm going to be the thought leader in this. And I'm going to, I'm going to define, cause I'm, I have total belief in what I'm doing here, you know? And I don't know, just like I said, it, it, you need to jump in there and to, and to want to play that game. You have to have the right skin on for it, you know? Right. Well, you know, and I want to say the caveat here, which is that there's, there are a lot of perfectly good, successful businesses that are stuck in somebody else's category and taking some market share. Mm-hmm. I, I have, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you could actually build a nice business of, you know, going into the milk business or going into, you know, um, the smartphone business and making something that's a little bit cheaper or, you know, a little bit lighter or God knows what. Right. And and that's the majority of businesses out there. We, t- we work with companies that want to do something more than that. Um, that that really want to like try to change the world or you know you know be something that you know much bigger and bolder than what they are and one of the things we'll go in with is say like um it it, it takes a lot of courage uh, because you're you're actually seeing something that nobody else can see yet 
and um and and it's going to take a lot of effort and and stick to itiveness to um, convince people that that's a real thing and that it's going to you know it's important and all those things. You know, you get situations like Airbnb going to whatever it was seventy eight VCs getting turned down seventy eight times before somebody finally decided to fund them, and that's because they had an idea that seemed so bizarre that nobody could get it. So, it still seems bizarre. The fact that I get in a car with a stranger or go to a stranger's house is contrary to everything I believe growing up. Yeah, well, you know that may be true, but um, but I, but yeah, the point the point is, yeah, and we we have this phrase we use we borrowed from some Silicon Valley VCs um, about seeing a zero billion dollar market. Like it doesn't exist yet, but you know that it's a multi-billion dollar market, but you have to, you're going to have to convince everybody that it is. So it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a courageous thing to do and it's not for everybody and it's shouldn't be for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, I think you're right. I mean, you know, it's, you don't always have to be, you know, challenging the, 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 you know, the big dog in the room, but at the same time, if you, um if you're getting swallowed up by it, you know, and again, even on a local level or a regional level, if there's a, um, a dominant business that is just you're you're having to drop prices, you're not profitable. You're you're chasing, you're chasing, chasing. Right. You know, right. exactly. That's not a way to, to 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 do anything. I mean, you're just kind of you know avoiding the inevitable. At sometimes, you know, like let me just let me keep treading water, treading water. There has to be a moment where you figure it out. You know, define, redefine yourself, understand who your market is, understand who your audience is, and start talking to them directly. You know, fe- meeting their needs. Um, whatever that may be. And there may be a subcategory somewhere in there that you can find. But I think a lot of people, um, if they're always looking at the guy down the road and they're trying to keep up with them, it's like, don't be them. Sometimes you got to be you, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and, 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 and winning a category doesn't necessarily mean you're like uh, going after a global mm-hmm. market. It, um, and as you're talking about with some of your clients, I mean, there are regional category winners niche category winners um that uh that that are uh, uh, you know are, are aiming at a very narrow market but um you know but clearly stand out and have you know have, have one i mean think of like all of the you could think of tons of probably you know neighborhoods for instance where um where some real estate agent has become the go-to person They're, they are the category winner as a real estate agent in some 10 mile square area and and they make an enormous living doing that um and that's a brilliant you know thing to do and and, and of course in those situations everybody else who comes in and says i want to be a real estate agent in the neighborhood is going to have to like scrapping for the you know market share that 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 leader doesn't have and, and that happens in lots of lots of this it, it doesn't have to be that you're trying to be you know the next uber how do you how do you guys deal with um I know we're getting close to time here, but what what is the um the influencer model right now that's really prevalent and 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 real? I mean, they they're you know, TikTok or Instagram where they're having a voice in this conversation, you know, because of millions of followers. They can they can really tilt the conversation sometimes, I think, if it's done properly. Do y'all consider that? Is that part of your the process or plan to consider that? Or is that just do you think it's just in passing right now? Well, it's, it's a lever to pull. Um, and we're, so we're not a marketing agency, for instance, and, um, uh, marketing happens a little downstream from category design because category design is really about a strategy, Mm -hmm. a company strategy. 
Um, but it certainly has a very big influence and informs marketing and sales and messaging and all of that on the, you know, downstream from that. Um, but um, I would be the last person to say that we're like brilliant marketing minds because we're not, but, um, but we have handed off two brilliant marketing minds who have taken the category work and pulled those different levers. And they've, you know, they, everything from, from influencers to advertising to thought leadership to, you know, everybody has a different way of doing it. Um, we talked about, we talked about hard seltzer and white claw earlier and the whole reason that that category took off and that white claw got, um, out ahead of everybody was because of a YouTube influencer. Uh, this YouTube comedian posted a video, you know, about the white claw summer or something like that. And it went viral and, and suddenly that stuck in everybody's you know heads about that was the, you know, that was this new cool thing. Interesting. It's amazing. People are fascinating to me. Uh, just the way that we think, the way that we do, and this this kind of place where buyers who think they're happy, uh, but then some creator develops something new that's better, and then how it becomes aware and spreads. Uh, the whole thing, I, I'm fascinated by our business every day. Yeah, and, and me too. You know, to go back to, um, so here we talked about Paul Gorosky, the economist who studied categories and came up with this elegant model and ran all this data and everything and, and came up with that idea of the dominant design. And he says right there in the book, I have no idea how the dominant design happens. <laughs> um, it's, and, and, you know, in some cases it's, it's, uh, you know, a YouTube comedian making a video. In some cases it's maybe it's, you know, some big government contract takes something over the edge. In many cases, it's just somehow massive psychology has decided that this is the thing to use. It's, you know, he even admitted there's there's no one way that this happens. Right. So you don't have that book. Jackie has a massive marketing and, and advertising book collection to her name. Um, you don't have his? I don't yet, but I ordered it right before we started. Yeah. <laughs> it just hasn't come in yet. I'm waiting for Amazon to knock on my door. Don't call me out like that. <laughs> I'm just I was curious. Usually you she's pulling up reference books as as we go. So well, but, and usually um, I read it beforehand. Uh, but again, I don't know why I haven't got my delivery yet. So it's in route. Kevin, I want to thank you for being with us though. Um it was sorry, sorry for the troubles earlier, but I appreciate you sticking with us um through the end. Um we always enjoy talking to people that are smarter than us and you definitely qualify. So uh that was uh it was very um educational. So thank you very much. Yeah, Michael, Jackie, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Kevin, it was a pleasure. Um, and to everyone listening, thank you for your time and attention. And I'm sure that you learned something from Kevin, just like we did. And uh, if you stuck through our technical challenges, we appreciate you even more. Uh, thank you all so much. And as always, uh, thanks for being a part of He Said, She Said, Raise Your Branding podcast. 